Through the rocket ship rise of Facebook, Chris Hughes, one of the now-fabled roommates of Mark Zuckerberg who helped bring it to life, came to understand how a select few can become ultra-wealthy nearly overnight. In this episode of the Ivy Podcast, we hear Chris's story, from co-founding Facebook to leading Barack Obama's digital organizing campaign for president, and his thoughts on how the same forces that made Facebook possible have made it harder for everyone else in America to make ends meet. Chris is the author of the new book, Fair Shot, Rethinking Inequality and How We Earn, which tackles how to combat poverty and stabilize America's middle class based on the idea of a guaranteed basic income. This episode of the Ivy Podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor-distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor-distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer. We know the journey, a lot of times the story is told from like Facebook onwards, but I really want to rewind it all the way back. What was it like growing up? Uh, tell us about you know your earliest memories to what actually got you to... Well, yeah, going all the way back. To all the way. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I grew up in uh, this little town, Hickory, North Carolina, which um, is a, a town at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. And I was an only child. My mom was a public school teacher. She taught um, high school math. And my dad was a traveling salesman. He was a, a paper salesman, the middle guy between the big factories and small little printing shops. And um, I don't know, what can I say? I grew up in a very kind of quote-unquote, all-American kind of setting, small southern town. We were as middle class as um, people came. And my parents had worked hard and worked their ways up. Their parents, my mom's parents, had been farmers and textile mill, mill workers. My dad's had been um, uh, handyman and uh, truck driver, et cetera. So um, that's where I grew up. And then I got, uh, my life changed pretty significantly when I got a scholarship to go uh, to a, a private boarding school in New England called Phillips Andover, and then later a scholarship to go to Harvard. And then life really changed when I roomed with Mark Zuckerberg, and we uh, started Facebook in February of 2004, and uh, the rocket ship took off, and life changed in so many ways, which is really the, the core of, um, of the story that I start to tell in the book. So how did the your so prior to Harvard, your journey growing up, um, what were the key values that you you got from the background that you have that then has kind of been a north star for you throughout your journey? I think the uh, we grew up pretty religious. Um, I mean, I can count the Sundays that we didn't go to church on one hand. Um, but the values that they that they um, shared with me really did really did stick. And I, I would say the 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 the, the most important one um, is that no one is invisible. That everybody in not just our country but our society and at the biggest picture in our world matters. And with that comes a fundamental um, dignity that um, it's our responsibility to, to recognize. And I argue, uh, uh, and, I, and I think they would agree, uh, uh, a fundamental sense that everybody should have 
the freedom to figure out what they want to do with their with their lives and with their time. So those are like very big picture kinds of ideals or values, but they are what um, what they taught me, what they transmitted to me, and uh, they those things have stuck with me and still motivate the work I'm doing now. So, Larry, you've had clearly you've accomplished great things. You've had great fortune uh, in in all the all the kind of uh, coincidences of life, like rooming with Mark, building this incredible project. Um, do you believe, do you have a sense of destiny that you're on a certain <clears throat> path um, um, with a, like a, something that you're here like meant to do? Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure about that. So I, I, in, in, in the book, I, I, um, I make the case that, um, you know, we co-founded Facebook in 2004. And um, it exploded in, in size and in scope. Um, and I worked there hard for three years. And then I got a financial reward of uh, nearly half a billion dollars, which was totally out of line with the work that I've, I mean, there's nothing else to call it but a lucky break. You know, that's really, no, no, but th this is the reason that, that I'm here. Because uh, that lucky break, at first I thought, you know, well, this is just happening to me. It's like such a, you know, fluke thing. There's only one Facebook and, you know, this is, this is not, um, not so common. Um, but as my husband and I made a commitment around Facebook's IPO to give away uh, virtually all of our wealth in our lifetime, and as I began the journey of thinking through how to do that and, and where best to invest those money, what I discovered is that while my story might be extreme, it's not that uncommon. You know, a, a very small group of people in America is getting very lucky and very wealthy nearly overnight because of rules of the road that we have agreed to politically, culturally. And um, I, I think we have a responsibility to do something about that. So to answer your question, though, about, you know, destiny or fate or any of those kinds of things, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. But I do feel that um, I'm doing what I'm doing now, that I work on what I work on um, very much because of... Um, the story of my life, and that's what's caused me to care about the things that I I care about. And I don't I, I wouldn't necessarily call that destiny, but I do feel that um, I'm shaped by those those forces. And it's hard for me to imagine working on um, anything but this at this moment in time. Absolutely. So, what was the journey from Facebook to you writing this book? What were the key influences that got you to decide, okay, I'm going to get this down on paper and spread the message? So, um, so I'll try to consolidate roughly like 14 years into uh, a single, um, con somewhat concise answer. So, um, after Facebook, I went and worked for Barack Obama for his presidential campaign in 2007, uh, 2008. And then after that, I, uh, moved to New York and, um, began to think about how to, um, invest the resources that I, um, now had because of Facebook. And um, the very first moment, though, was actually in 2008, when I sold um, uh, a little bit of stock on the private markets, and just a little bit of stock, even, in, even then in 2008, ended up being worth a million dollars. And my parents had always taught me to tithe. 
it was just like something that we did. We went to church every week, so every every month, you know, you put 10% of your after-tax or, or excuse me, of your before-tax income in the um, in the envelope, and you put it in the offering plate, and you pass the plate on down. So um, after I had sold this little bit of stock, I had um, uh, in the in the tradition to um, to think about. Okay, now I want to give away hundred thousand dollars this year. And I had given away money in the past, but you know, it's one thing to give a small grant. But you know, if 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 any of you, if you were asked, well, what are you ready to give $100,000 to tomorrow? I, I think like most people, I, I said, well, um, I don't know exactly. There are l- so many good causes. I mean, education, health, international poverty, animal rights. I mean, so many different things. But what, what's going to be the most effective thing for me to do? So um, uh, the, 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 um, the short version of the story is I began to look particularly internationally and um, think about what is the most impactful thing. How can I get the most bang for the buck that, that I'm going to give away, that I'm going to invest? And it took me to a counterintuitive place. It took me to um, cash. It turns out that there is a robust amount of evidence that shows hundreds of studies internationally and many here domestically in the United States that show that dollar for dollar, one of the most, if not the most effective things that you can do to help provide economic mobility and an increase the you know, amount of freedom that a person has is just give them money. They tend to use, people tend to spend it well, they tend to re- responsibly, health incomes improve, education incomes improve, et cetera. So I started doing that. I went on the board of Give Directly and made my first $100,000 gift um, to people living on less than a dollar a day in East Africa. Literally, the money is just texted to people. And then I went to Africa several times to some of the villages to talk to people. Was inspired, have all kinds of stories which we can talk more about if it's of interest. And then I started to think, okay, well, our economic engine in the United States is um, uh, effectively, uh, it's not producing for most Americans. Could this also be possible in the United States? That brought me to the fight for a guaranteed income, the book, and what I'm doing today. All right. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us about Guaranteed income. What's the philosophy behind it, and what? How does it practically work? So it's an old idea, and it goes by lots of um, different names. You, um, uh, a lot of people talk about a UBI, a universal basic income, these days. I talk more about a guaranteed income. We can talk a, a little bit about the difference, but they're inspired by the same ideals that everybody should have uh, uh, the freedom to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And specifically, that if you are working to make the lives of your, your, yourself, your family, your community better in some way, you should not live in poverty. In 2018, in the richest country in the world, at the richest moment in history, if you are you know, working to improve the lives of yourself or the people around you, you should have economic opportunity. So the idea is simple. It's to provide cash, in my view, $500 every single month to everybody who makes less than $50,000 and who is working in some way to improve the lives of themselves or or their community. It's with no strings attached, comes as a, a, a working tax credit, direct deposit into your bank account every single, every single month. Uh, or by um, debit card, 
similar to how um, some other benefits are administered today. And, uh, and people can use it for whatever is most, most pressing. I mean, this kind of benefit is um, uh, imminently affordable, I believe, if we ask the most fortunate among us to pay our share and would lift 20 million people out of poverty overnight and would help uh, 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 tens of millions, up to 90 million people, many of whom are part of the middle class who are struggling to, uh, to make ends meet. Obviously, it sounds like a really fantastic idea. And what are like the most common challenges that an idea like this faces? Why doesn't it exist already? What is the hesitation that people have? The, the biggest question that you hear first off is, um, can you really trust people with just money? You know, are they, are they, are they really going to, can't we just like uh, invest in education or microloans or um, small business the small business community to spur entrepreneurship? Um, why do we need to give people money? Like, can't they just use it on all kinds of stuff that they shouldn't be um, using it for? And there's a, um, there, there's, a, there's a practical response to that, and there's also a moral one. The practical one is that um, we already give $70 billion to tens of millions of Americans in this country. It's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And what it really is is we send checks in the spring uh, to people who need the money the most, and we know generally that they use it responsibly, that their kids do better on tests afterward. They stay in school longer. We know from other similar cash transfer programs that people, uh, that hospitalization rates go down. We know that people um, uh, uh, tend to work just as much as they did before, if not more. That they tend, uh, uh, that, that they don't start, you know, smoking or drinking um, uh, significantly more. We know that it works. So there's a practical answer, and then there's the moral answer, which is, in my view. Um, I want to live in a society and in a country where we recognize the fundamental dignity of every single individual to figure out what, what she or he wants to do with their time. And, and <laughs> thank you. And, and cash is unlike any other kind of benefit in that it doesn't say you need to go to this government office, uh, you know, once every month to prove to them that you're doing X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, you need to um, only use this money for a housing voucher for this certain kind of apartment that the government thinks you should live in, in some neighborhood that may not be. It, it, instead, it says, it, it recognizes the fundamental dignity of the individual to be the master of uh, their own destiny. And so I, I, I think that there is a, a, a moral case to be made um, uh, in addition to the, the um, practical one. Absolutely. And um, so you mentioned $500 per month. Um, so that's $6,000 a year. Uh, what, are, for, what about people with families, dependents, and so forth? That doesn't seem like a lot. Um, not just in New York, but I would imagine across the board compared to like GDP per capita. So how do you think about the amounts? Well, two things. Just to contextualize the amount. If you have um, a family of um, four, uh, so a couple kids and two parents, if both parents are working in minimum wage jobs full-time, let's say you can get 40 hours, which we should talk about automation and globalization. These changes in the economy have meant that a lot of hardworking people aren't able to get 40 hours. But let's say 
Two parents working 40 hours at minimum wage make about uh, 30K at the federal minimum wage line. So $12,000 would, uh, $6,000 for each parent, for $12,000 a year, would be uh, a really meaningful boost. I mean, that's a boost of 40% of, um, of their income overnight. It's not so much money that a lot of people are worried, well, if you give away so much money, you'll see um, people dropping out of the labor force, or you'll see all these effects. And even though there's little economic evidence to suggest that's true, because we've actually done experiments on this before in the 70s in the US, and then there's a little version of this policy up in Alaska, which we can talk more about. There's little evidence to show that people drop out. But at that level in particular, it's really meant to be a boost. A boost to the bottom line of people who are already having a hard time making ends meet. And they, by the way, you know, median wages have not meaningfully moved in our country in 40 years, but the cost of living is up by 30%. So in some ways, this is, I think, just restoring people back to, frankly, just a, a kind of, of, of benchmark. One other answer, though, to your question is, I was in um, uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio last summer. And I was at one of these community meetings with a lot of people who we were there at the invitation of a nonprofit who works on the ground to talk about the new economy, how has technology changed work, um, all these things. And we'd had a great conversation. It had been really robust, about 20 people in the group. A few of my colleagues were there and I was there. And then um, I asked a version of that same question, but I, I went even lower. At the, at the time, I was still you know, developing some of the policy ideas here. And I said, um, what, what would you guys say to someone who said, what difference would $100 a month make in your life? Would that really make that much of a difference? And it had been a really congenial meeting up until that point. And I, I asked that question, and it was silent. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. No one said a word. And finally, um, an African-American woman in her late 30s looked up and she locked eyes with me directly and she said, frankly, anybody who's asking that question has never had to choose at the end of the month between making rent and paying groceries. She didn't say another word. Nobody else in the circle said another word and they, and they didn't need to. Because her point was clear, like what might seem like a modest amount of money to some is the difference between paying the bills to stay on your feet and provide for your family and not. And uh, that moment really shaped my worldview and said that, you know, we, we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It's okay to start with what it is I think, by all accounts, a modest amount of money, $500, and think that if the robots do come and take all the jobs, if self-driving cars do arrive in 2030 or, or sooner or later, then we can talk about what an even bigger kind of universal basic income might look like. But when we're talking about what to do today, um, uh, I think $500 is a particularly powerful spot to begin. Got it. And I'm sure you've run the numbers in terms of like how much that would cost, yeah, let's taxpayer, and everything like that. But let's really go like fast forward to the future. So okay. um, as let's say more forces come about that uh, reduces the number of jobs available, or at least eliminates a whole set of jobs, and there's a transition time, 
or maybe permanently just eliminates the ability for everybody to be employed at all times. What's kind of like the logical progression that you see? Because this is something that could happen not in like centuries, but actually in a matter of a uh, couple decades. It could. It, it really could. Um, and there are a lot of smart people, many of whom are in Silicon Valley, um, but there are a lot of smart people who think that it will. You know, um, Elon Musk is out there every day saying that work is, you know, the end of work is nigh. Um, uh, and there are a lot of other people too. I mean, um, Richard Branson um, is of this school. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are a list of people who, who are pretty convinced. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is, there is a case to be made that artificial intelligence could wipe out jobs um, in a way that is unlike anything historically. Um, I also think that there's the economists who more often say, eh, it's unlikely, this time isn't different, work is always going to be around. You know, they've been right more often than not. They've been right every single time uh, when other people have said this throughout history. So um, I, think it's, I think it's an important debate to have. However, I think it obscures a little bit what's already happening in the economy. I mean, we are seeing the rise of um, uh, a gig economy that is, um, in, you know, that is defining work in America increasingly. And it's not just like the Lyft drivers and Postmates delivery people. We're all familiar with, with that. But um, it's so many of the other jobs. Of, in the past 10 years, but according to a Princeton study, 94%, 94% of all the jobs that we've created have been part-time, contract, or temporary, which means fundamentally unstable. They're just not like a job used to mean 40 hours, benefits, maybe paid leave, maybe retirement benefits. Uh, that's, that's what my parents had uh, in both of their jobs. And now... Uh, that's increasingly unlikely. So the question around, around wholesale job destruction, I think, is an important is an important one to explore. But I I think that um, in my view, we need a guaranteed income today because of the the fundamental instability that that technology and globalization and the rise of finance that all of these forces have introduced in the lives of of uh, of working Americans. And if guaranteed income, let's say, is introduced in a modest way now and then grows over time as needed, isn't there a potential risk that um, political leaders may have kind of a, like a populist approach to kind of keep growing that guaranteed income or promising more? Um, I'm, I'm just trying to like kind of yeah. bring your idea to the logical conclusion. Where do you think it will go? Well, I don't think it will go anywhere inevitably, I have to say. I mean, this is a big idea. I, the... Um, uh, and it's also um, the kind of idea that um, has cropped up in American history several times in the past. Like we actually had, we had a president um, who was Republican, Richard Nixon, who supported a guaranteed income. It passed the House and failed in the Senate. And the idea sort of went underground for a long time. It, it, it was part of what what created the earned income tax credit, which is the framework that I'm using that I'm I think we should use for guaranteed income today, but um, it, it, it went underground. So the moment that we're in, I think, is um, an important moment with all kinds of opportunities, but we have to seize it. 
We can't just say, oh, that's, that's sort of an interesting idea. I don't know if that'll ever really happen. We'll see. You know, that, that, that it will spell more of the same. That will spell more income inequality, more income instability, and a greater destabilization, I think, of the entire um, uh, political system. Um, and, and I don't really think that that is, is um, an option. I do think, I think your question is, like, if we are successful, what are some of the, um, the concerns? What are some of the, the, the downsides? For instance, will there be pressure to make it just bigger and bigger and bigger always? Um, I'd say two things. I'd say, first off, we've seen up in Alaska where they have a small guaranteed income of $1,500 a year for every Alaskan that um, there isn't a constant pressure to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. There is a pressure to, to, to protect and, and defend it. I would also say that you know if we are successful here, by no means is this a silver bullet. Right. I mean, you know, without meaningful changes to our healthcare system, a smarter climate policy, housing reform to make sure the cost of housing doesn't eat up the benefit, um, without these kinds of, of, of similar kinds of programs, then, um, uh, then I think we'll still have Im- immense challenges. I do think, though, that sometimes the best solution is the simplest. And we tend to overlook cash and all the efficiency and effectiveness and go to all of these other structural solutions when, um, in many cases, I think the, um, the most powerful weapon that we have to combat income inequality and give economic and restore economic um, opportunity to people is, um, is the simplest. And in many ways, it's right under our noses. And what would be your kind of uh, call to action to the audience here? Uh, how can they get involved, not just you know with this particular idea, but all you outlined a lot of issues, current issues out there. What have you found, um, you know, is the most effective way for people to get involved? Do I get one? Oh no, no, multiple. I yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got. We got. Um, uh, well, I've got. Uh, there are many. Um, I think the first. Um, is to give the uh, is to give the idea a good run through the ringer. You know, this is it, as simple as it is. I don't want to s- sit up here and act like this is the solution. You know, I think it is a part and a meaningful part of the solution. But I think really um, kicking the tires of the idea personally and doing that with friends, with family, with people that. You trust. I mean, it is a. It's an old idea, but in some ways, it's uh, it's a new idea. And so, um, I think we often tend to underestimate the power, particularly of people like in a room like this, to have um, provocative conversations. And 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 those questions can often be the kind of domino effect. So that's a simple one. And I do think I would hope that you would check out the book because I, I think it's a useful jumping-off point to understand the idea. Um, in more detail and to um, uh, figure out which parts make sense and which parts might not. Um, I, secondly, um, the, we're testing this idea. The group that I co-run is um, called the Economic Security Project. And we have a demonstration of the guaranteed income that's um, kicking off this fall in uh, Stockton, California, which we've got a couple of Californ- Californians in here, um, which is a city that went bankrupt before Detroit 
Uh, it's a city of 300,000 people in the Central Valley in um, California, and it's got a lot, uh, a lot of challenges, and it's got a lot going for it. The, one of the biggest things it has going for it is um, a new mayor who happens to be the youngest mayor of a major city in the United States. He was elected at 20, age 27, I think. His name is um, Michael Tubbs. He's the first African-American mayor of Stockton, which is a city that um, is incredibly uh, diverse uh, with a, a you know, African-American, Latino, Asian-American, white. It really is in many ways a microcosm of the future of America. And he is running a guaranteed income um, demonstration in Stockton that um, we're putting up um, private philanthropic dollars. I'm donating to, others are donating to. Um, and we need people not just to donate to it, but to get involved in it, particularly for cultural and creative types. We have an RFP out there to get documentarians in, to get artists of all types to tell the stories. Um, we've got uh, researchers and academics. So I think that there's an opportunity not just to support that work in, work in Stockton, but to think about, you know, where else can we do that? We're, we're funding a phenomenal leader because he stood up and said, I'm willing to, you know, take a chance. So that's, that's a way. And then a third way, I know, you know, uh, um, that's why I asked if, there, if I only had to choose one, is, is in politics. Um, I do think that um, uh, we have a responsibility to, you know, surface this idea with, pe with people on the left and on the right and provoke a conversation. The earned income tax credit is, hist has historically been super popular. Every president since Gerald Ford, every Republican president, and every Democratic president has expanded the program. So there's precedent to do it again and to not just expand it, but modernize it, to make it simpler, to make it bigger, and to make it um, uh, recognize some untraditional kinds of, of labor. So um, political pressure is, is key too. So, and then there's another, I was saying earlier, there's another half dozen ways. We've got them all on the, the websites, fairshopbook.com. There's a whole what you can do page. There's no shortage of stuff that, um, that people can do if they get, get excited. All right, well, I want to thank you for sharing your perspectives. Thank you so much. I want to give a big round of applause. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired. This episode of the Ivy podcast is presented by Smartwater. What makes Smartwater so smart? It starts with a little inspiration from the clouds, nature's purest source of water. Smartwater copies those puffy white clouds in creating vapor distilled purity, pure perfection. Smartwater also has electrolytes, which helps give it that clean, crisp taste. Clouds will always be the inspiration, since the water is vapor distilled for purity. Purity you can taste, hydration you can feel. Choose Smartwater or Smartwater Sparkling today and at your local retailer.